listening to KHOL. This is Jackson Unpacked, our weekly podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. I'm news director Kyle Mackey. Before we get started, we're excited to share that all five episodes of our special limited podcast series with Steo are now out. If you're not listening already, it's called Facets, Voices of the Mountain Life. And it's all about the complex relationship between humans and the natural world of Jackson Hole. The episodes cover everything from wilderness therapy to a new sustainable business model and immigration to the impact of backcountry skiing on bighorn sheep in the Tetons. This was our team's first experiment with truly long-form audio storytelling, and we're really proud of how it came out. If you enjoy Facets, please let us know by leaving a rating and review for the show in Apple Podcasts. You can also help us spread the word on social media and old-fashioned word of mouth. Now, coming up today on Jackson Unpacked, police are investigating suspected arson at a new clinic set to start providing abortions in Casper next month. You know, I think we're certainly aware, of course, of the the national dialogue right now, but we approach every investigation with the utmost integrity and detailed investigative skills possible. Plus, artist Elizabeth Morissette discusses her unique exhibit made from recycled materials on display now at the Center for the Arts. Some people might just might be like, whoa, cool colors. Other people might be sentimental and other people might see kind of the bigger idea of like, oh my gosh, this is all junk that was on its way to the landfill. But first, like many employers in Jackson Hole, Grand Teton National Park is struggling to house and retain its workforce. But the challenge isn't unique to this park. As KHOL's Will Walkie reports, the U.S. Department of the Interior is looking into ways to fund innovative lodging solutions, both in Teton County and other National Park gateway communities across the country. Sam Ritchie's home is steps away from the National Elk Refuge. She says it has everything she needs, a bedroom, kitchen, and sitting area with a comfortable couch. It's wonderfully cozy, and it's hilarious because at work, I work on log cabins all day and come to live in one every night. She first took a job with the National Park Service in the summer of 2017 when she was a backcountry ranger in Yellowstone. It was isolating work. Grocery trips meant an hour and a half drive to Jackson. But she loved it anyway. I've managed to live in incredibly beautiful places and work with my hands most of the day and work outside most of the day. And I kind of realized that that was a priority for me. Richie's performed historic preservation work for the Park Service in western Wyoming for the past few years. And this spring, she's starting a new full-time position doing trail work for Grand Teton National Park. Last month, there was also a major development that boosted her quality of life outside of work. She moved into a full-time place to live. In the last year, I've really considered looking at other parks that have more stable housing situations in the surrounding neighborhoods and cities. But thankfully, it lucked out that the park was able to offer me housing, and I'm currently living in park housing, which is actually affordable and kind of allows me to exhale a little bit. Richie says she was displaced four times in two years while navigating market rate housing in Jackson. Her former landlords sold their properties or jacked up the rents, and tenants in Wyoming don't have many rights to challenge those decisions. As a result, Grand Teton Superintendent Chip Jenkins says many of his employees are struggling to find permanent lodging right now. Unless a person really comes from unusual 
circumstances and are able to be able to muster the capital to get into the private market, that's not a choice that is open to our employees. The median home sale price in Teton County eclipsed $4 million this year. Just about 14% of the park's employees choose to live in private housing, Jenkins says. But by 2026, that number will be down to about 5%. And what's happening now is that every time we have a turnover in positions, so for example, we had our uh, chief ranger who has been a longtime resident in town. When they have moved on to other jobs, when we hire our new chief ranger who came down from Alaska, she can't afford to get into the housing market. She, her husband, and her son, um, they can't afford to rent or to buy. So we need to be able to provide their housing. Jenkins estimates that he needs 35 new households in the next four years just to retain his current staff. And that's not accounting for future needs. 3.8 million people visited Grand Teton in 2021, a record amount. So Jenkins says it's logical that the park will need to add more staff eventually. You know, I think we have a need for uh, more custodians, uh, for more law enforcement rangers. Frankly, we, part of what we need is we need more digital rangers. We need people who are helping in order to be able to provide information to people so that they can plan their trips. Grand Teton has a full-time housing officer who maintains current stock, matches employees with rooms, and manages any issues that come up. Jenkins is also working with the Park Service's headquarters in Washington, D.C. to strategize how to quickly build more units. He says that's critical not only to keep his organization running, but for the local community as well. It's our responsibility to keep the roads open from Moran down to, you know, down to town. Uh, we have mutual aid agreements with the sheriff and the police department and the emergency medical services and the fire department. And I think this last year, we responded to over 50 emergency calls just up in Buffalo Valley. Speaking in testimony in mid-May before Congressional Committee, National Park Service Director Chuck Sams said he's asking for additional funding for employee housing in his annual budget. Millions are specifically allocated for Grand Teton and other western areas. Median home purchase prices continue to rise throughout the United States and many of our gateway communities. And short-term vacation rental markets are thriving and therefore taking away from our seasonal work staff who usually wouldn't be able to find uh, a housing in our gateway communities. Beyond more funding, the federal government is also looking into alternative ways to develop. In Maine, lawmakers are proposing a land transfer from Acadia National Park to a local organization so they can build more workforce housing units in the nearby town of Bar Harbor. That's a difficult strategy under current regulations, but earlier this month, Associate Director of Park Planning, Facilities and Lands for the Park Service, Michael Caldwell, told a U.S. Senate committee he'd like to explore options like that more often. We're working with others to try to maybe gain some more flexibilities and authorities that are needed for public-public and public-private partnerships to help us with our housing needs. To that end, two Western members of Congress introduced a bipartisan act last month that would cut red tape around private-public partnerships with the goal of building quickly in gateway communities like Jackson. But it hasn't gained traction yet. Meanwhile, Grand Teton National Park is dealing with another issue connected to the cost of living in Jackson, employee recruitment. Jenkins says he has about 25 open positions for the summer season, lodging included, but no candidates to take them. Will Walkie, KHOL News.
Officials are investigating suspected arson at the new Wellspring Health Access Clinic in Casper, which is set to become the first provider of surgical abortions in Wyoming when it opens next month. KHOL's Kyle Mackey reports. The clinic has been the site of protest by abortion opponents and counter-protest by abortion rights advocates for the past several weeks. Police extinguished a fire they believe was set intentionally at the clinic around 4 a.m. Wednesday. Rebecca Ladd is public information officer for the Casper Police Department. She says the divisive national debate about abortion rights will not affect the resulting investigation. You know, I think we're certainly aware, of course, of the the national dialogue right now, but we approach every investigation with the utmost integrity and detailed investigative skills possible. Ladd also says a team from the Denver Field Division of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives has been invited to aid in the investigation. In the meantime, police are trying to identify a potential suspect. A witness said they saw, quote, an individual running away from the building with a gas can and a black bag. At this time, we do not have that person identified. We do believe that is potentially the suspect. Um, And we've been gathering surveillance footage uh, throughout the day, attempting to get some sort of still photo that will help us identify this individual with the public. KHOL spoke to Ladd Wednesday afternoon. Newer information about the investigation may be available on the Casper Police Department's Facebook page. In a written statement, the founder of Wellspring Health Access, Julie Burkhart, said she was grateful no one was injured and that the organization is still committed to providing comprehensive reproductive health care in Casper. The only other provider of medical abortion services during the first 10 weeks of pregnancy in Wyoming is located in Jackson. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from K2L. I'm news director Kyle Mackey, and this is our weekly podcast featuring reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop every Friday on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Next, an exhibit of colorful tapestries made entirely from, quote, upcycled materials is on display now through June 10th at the Center for the Arts Theater Gallery in downtown Jackson. KHOL Music and Community Affairs Director Jack Catlin sat down with artist Elizabeth Morissette to learn more about the story behind her work. This conversation was recorded live in the KHOL studios earlier this month. Colorado-based artist Elizabeth Morissette has been exhibiting her weavings and sculptures made from repurposed materials for over 25 years. Artist Elizabeth Morissette's joins us now in the KHOL studios. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So Elizabeth, where did this passion for creating art from found objects originally come from? I used to live in Salt Lake City and my dad used to take us out on camping trips and we never went to campgrounds. We always went like out on BLM land and then they just open the doors and say, go have fun. And so, uh, I'd always go out and like gather sticks or, or stones and make them into houses and then uh, make them into sculptures. So I think that's where it came from. I would just go find cool things and like make little sculptures out of them. And that's, I think, where my creative kind of creativeness began. So you're quoted in the recent Jackson Hole News and Guide article saying it's about seeing things as more than just junk and stuff and more as a resource. 
Can you expand on that for us? Well, if you think about why people started making baskets with reeds, um, why people started using what they used to make uh, different, in particular, craft things, things that they needed for their, their everyday life, people used what they found available, easily, free, easy to kind of find, and then easy to manipulate. And so you think about what do we have now? What do we have in our midst that we can find for relatively free um, that we can put together and to make into something useful or something that makes you think? And that's kind of, that's bottle caps, that's uh, twist ties, that's all this kind of stuff that we end up with that we don't know what to do with and we don't want to throw it away. How can we reuse it and make it into something cool or something useful? So I found it interesting that you don't alter your materials very much and you let those materials define the color and texture of each of the pieces. From the initial idea to the final product, can you walk us through your creative process? So what I do is I have essentially a banker's box. And if I'm thinking of making a piece that's um, made all of rulers, for example, I'll start collecting rulers. And sometimes it might take me about 10 years to collect enough of whatever I'm looking for. Like if I'm doing Pez dispensers, whenever I go to the thrift store, um, I'll gather the Pez dispensers and that'll take a while to collect. So when that banker's box is full, I know I have enough to make a tapestry. Sometimes if I need to, I'll drill a hole into each one of those Pez dispensers and then I weave it on a frame loom, which is essentially um, four pieces of wood that are, to, that are attached together like a frame. And I weave them uh, using fabric strips and string. And I weave them like a shag rug, except for instead of strings coming out, it's uh, these pieces of plastic or Pez dispensers or rulers or whatever it is that the piece is made out of. You said that you're that you see your work as a reflection of our times, a kind of snapshot of who we are right now. How so? By the items that are there. There's a piece that's made out of slides, uh, transparent slides that used to be something that whenever anybody went out on a vacation, they'd bring home the slide sh slides and then you'd sit around and watch the slide projector show and they'd tell you about their trip. Now it's, you know, all instant on Instagram or a Facebook. Uh, so I think there might be people who come through the gallery and don't know, have never seen slides and don't know what they are and probably don't know what I'm talking about right now. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a reflection in that they're still here. They're plastic. They're not going anywhere. So it's part of our history. It's part of who we are. So it kind of tells people about that. I have a piece that's made out of plastic rollers that every time it's shown, people have cool stories that I love to listen to. Like there's a mom that's talking to her daughter and saying, your grandma used to make me wear those on Saturday night before we go to church on Sunday. And it's like a feeling that she's like her head hurts when she looks <laughs> at this piece. So um, it's telling stories, but it's also reflecting on who we are and how the stuff that's in our lives really kind of defines us in a way. And it might just be a momentary definition, but it kind of sticks with us. And I can speak on that personally with your a trio featured here of wristbands from concerts. Mm. And I immediately just transporting, thinking about all the concerts that I've been to and all the wristbands that I've had on my wrists. And it's really cool how you get that emotion coming out of the piece and grabbing mm. you. So you've also stressed the significance of the memories attached to the pieces you create, that your work is a conversation with materials. I thought that was very interesting. Most of the time, the pieces, the things that I use in my piece are not my own. So it's kind of like I'm responding to the piece with my own memory, my own sentimentality, you might say. And then um, I drill holes into them and I put them through this whole process and then they hang on the wall and then it becomes a different piece. So people are going to approach these different ways. Some people might, it just might be like, whoa, cool colors. Other people might be sentimental and other people might see kind of the bigger idea of like, oh my gosh, this is all junk that was on its way to the landfill. And how much of this stuff, like I only took a fraction of what's going to the landfill on a daily basis. So 
There's different levels that you can look at the pieces and it's up to the viewer to decide. I just put it out there and I'm like, here you go. This is it. Um, this is something that you need to kind of think about and whatever level you want to think about it, that's fine with me. Well, Elizabeth Morissette, thank you so much for joining us here at KHOL. Artifact will be up through June 10th. Make sure to visit 891KHOL.org for more music, news, and culture. I'm Jack Catlin, and this is KHOL Jackson. Our last story today comes to KHOL through the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition. 15 years ago, residents and visitors to Telluride, Colorado raised $50 million to purchase 570 acres of land on the west end of town. The land, known as the Valley Floor, now sits as protected open space, home to local elk, with cross-country ski trails in the winter and hiking and biking in the summer. This month, area kids also headed out to the valley floor to learn more about the local environment. Julia Caulfield of KOTO tagged along and brings us this story. Walking out onto the valley floor on a warm, albeit slightly smoky, Monday morning, small groups of kindergartners, first and second graders tromp through the open space. It's Valley Floor Education Day. We learn about birds, we learn about invertebrates, we learn about river flow, we learn about the spruce forest, and we learn about the history of the Valley Floor. Um, The people from the museum, uh, from the History Museum, are are bringing their history lesson to to the willow section. That's Sarah Holbrook, executive director of the Pinhead Institute, a youth science nonprofit. It's cute to be able to see the kids' faces when you say, you know, this is your valley floor. You know, this is yours. They're like, what? Yeah, so it's it's our valley floor, right? We live here in Telluride. We get to um, to experience it and learn from it. And it's just wonderful to see the kids' faces light up when, when they get onto the grass and see the goose poop and <laughs> see the birds' scopes and see the bugs that come out of the pond. And, um, and they'll learn lessons on water flow, hydrology, the river, all that kind of stuff. It's a great, it's a great day. I'm super psyched for it. Pinhead, along with Sheet Mountain Alliance, an environmental nonprofit, the Telluride Institute and the Telluride Historical Museum are collaborating on the day. Over at the pond, students learn about habitat and birds. First things first, what is a habitat? Thanks for raising your hand. A habitat is somewhere where an animal lives, like a forest, a swamp. Ooh. Those are great examples. So a habitat can be somewhere where an animal lives. It could be where a plant lives. Vicki Phelps is teaching about invertebrates. We found qu- quite a bit in the pond. Um, normally we find all kinds of cool stuff in the river, but the flow is so high. It's really hard to get your <laughs> grip with a kick net and, and collect things. But um, we found some mayflies and leeches, scuds, uh, worms. Um, back swimmers, uh, boatmen, which have these cool paddle-like appendages. She hopes Valley Floor Education Day helps foster appreciation for the landscape and a better understanding of how everything is connected. This is sort of a, a icebreaker for the Valley Floor. They, they, then they can come back with their families and share 
their excitement and their knowledge. Moving to the river, there are beaver homes to explore. Um, cool, so this is a burrow. And what else? Beavers build dams, and what else do they build? A lot. Yep, she's got it. Stream flow to understand. Okay, so this is a really special feature of river, the eddy. This little spot in here is something we call an eddy. And often the water is very still, or it will actually flow upstream. Stepping back into a willow grove, students make bracelets out of willow, learning about the Ute people who used to summer on this land. They had what we call a symbiotic relationship. Can you say the word symbiotic? Symbiotic. Yes, so that means that even if they were going to take from the land, they weren't taking more than what they needed to survive. Vivian Hartnett, she's six, likes coming to the valley floor to look for treasures and fossils. I really like to do a lot of fun stuff down in the valley floor. Today, her favorite part is learning about the beavers. Rivers are really important to beavers and things that like to live in the water. And the trees are really important for elk, and the, everything is important for nature. Vivian's mom, Amy Hartnett, is along for the field trip as well. For her, Valley Floor Education Day helps children get a better understanding of the place they live. I think the more that kids can learn about where they live and the importance of ecosystems, people that have lived here before them, animals, it just helps them realize that they're um, a, a bigger, a part of something bigger, you know, and it makes them want to care for things more and respect everything from, you know, the big mountains to the, the tiny little bugs that, you know, live on the valley floor. Everything in between is very special and it's great for them to learn at this age. It's really important for them to learn so young. Telluride celebrated Valley Floor Day on May 9th with a banner on Main Street, recognizing the 13th anniversary of the valley floor becoming open space a community treasure available to explore for generations to come. For KOTO and Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Julia Caulfield in Telluride, Colorado. Now for the weekly news roundup. Here are the headlines you might have missed this past week. The Jackson Town Council and Teton County Board of Commissioners continue to narrow down their choices Monday for what should be on a special excise tax ballot this fall. Over $230 million in proposals are still on the table, from water quality master plans to fire station repairs to housing developments. But more proposals will eventually need to be cut prior to asking the citizens what they want to fund. Councilman Jonathan Schechter, during discussions, said elected officials still need to do some soul-searching to figure out what will make the final ballot. We have to address housing in a meaningful way. There's no question about that. But that's not the only issue facing the community. And so when I talk about a holistic view, what I'm thinking about is how much of the total that we're going to present to the voters is going to be put into housing, how much is going to go into the environment, how much is going to go into other areas. Multiple meetings still need to take place before any decisions are made, including ones where public comment will be taken. Gambling on horse racing could be coming to Teton County, according to the Jackson Hole News and Guide. A Gillette-based company wants to revive the old whole bowl, maintaining the alleys, a restaurant, and a bar. 
but it also wants to add a gaming parlor where patrons could essentially use kiosks to bet on what's called paramutual races, no track required. The County Board of Commissioners seemed open to the idea Monday, with Greg Epstein liking the potential for the plan to bring revenue and revive a once thriving local business. You know, Whole Bowl was a family-oriented community place where you know, young kids could have birthday parties and things like that. And now that Whole Bowl is going away for you know, economic reasons, that opens up a gap in our, in our community. But Epstein also doesn't want to lose the family-friendly nature because of the gaming parlor. The commission will vote June 7th on whether or not to approve this new permit in Whole Bull, but a number of other regulatory decisions would be on deck after that. A wide-ranging chat with Jackson Town Council members event Wednesday covered everything from concerns about environmental degradation in Jackson Hole to the new proposed rules for short-term rentals outside of the lodging overlays. Responding to a resident comment about, quote, overpopulation and over-tourism, Vice Mayor Arne Jorgensen said some problems are absolutely real, but there are also limits to what local officials can control. There is no villain here. We are all part of the problem. And I would suggest when we are stuck in traffic sometime this summer, look around at the license plates. There are a shocking number of license plates that are local. Um, it is not all the tourists. The informal chats with council members take place monthly, usually on the last Wednesday. Grand Teton National Park will be working to restore sagebrush habitat in the area through efforts this summer. The project is replacing foreign grasses planted during the homestead era with native plants. This helps support animals like elk, moose, and bison, according to the park. And the 200 acres set for refurbishment this season are near Mormon Row and Spring Gulch Road. The ultimate goal is to return 4,500 acres to their former glory with the help from Jackson Hole nonprofits. And to date, over 1,000 acres have been restored. That's it for today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is by the local band Strombucket. You can help us spread the word about Jackson Unpacked by leaving a rating and review for the show in Apple Podcasts. I'm Kyle Mackey, and this is KHOL Jackson. Jackson.